Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So Jesus is talking to religious leaders and he, he gets in their face, he confronts them and he says to them, look, the problem, the problem with you and religion as it stands is this, it's possible for you to project this image to the world that, that you're holy and righteous and that you're, you're like alive, but at the same time you can simultaneously look alive and actually be dead inside. He had a curious way of saying it. This is how he put it to the religious leaders of his day. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. It's possible to look alive and at the same time be dead inside. Now I want you to hang on to that image for just a minute because I want us to balance that image with another possibility. It's also possible to look dead but actually still be alive. So in the 17th and 18th centuries, a really bizarre phenomenon spread across Europe. There was a new fear that had emerged, and the fear is technically called taphophobia. You know what taphophobia is? It's not, it's not the you know, fear of eating sticky candy, taffy. It's not, it's not the fear of, of gooey candy. Taphophobia is the fear of being buried alive. I know that many of you suffer from taphophobia, right? But taphophobia, for the context of the 17th and 18th century, there were conditions, there were plagues and pandemics that that caused people to wonder, what if I pass out and they think that I'm dead and they bury me? Then, Then what do I do if I'm actually not dead? So engineers began to construct safe coffins. No kidding. Safe coffins. They were constructed with uh, intricate pulley systems and ropes and strings that were connected to bells on the outside above ground that if the dead were not really dead, they could pull on these these strings and the bell would ring and the, the, the cemetery keeper would come and exhume the body and the person would just go right back on living, right? So the first known safe coffin was in 1792. Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick had died, and his coffin was outfitted with breathing tubes as well as a lock that corresponded with a key that went in his pocket and also glass for sunlight to get in, right? Now, there's no known record of anyone actually being buried alive, ringing the bell, and being rescued, but the possibility is provocative, isn't it? The possibility is that Jesus said, you can look alive and actually be dead, but what if it's possible for the world around you 
to be done with you. For you to actually feel as if you are dead, but something inside you says, I'm still alive. Every evidence around me and most of what is in me tells me it's over, it's dead, I'm a goner. But there is a part of you, maybe even right this very moment, that feels like, well, in the words of the great theologian Monty Python, I'm not dead yet. My question for you is this. We live in this spectrum between death and life. We are constantly being called by Christ to move from death and the patterns of death and the attitudes and behaviors of death into life. How alive are you? How alive are you? So our our Lord said, look, this is why I've come. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. That means that in God's perspective, God seems to believe that it's possible for your life to be teeming with purpose and hope and satisfaction and contentment, forgiveness and and reconciled relationships. It's possible for your life right this very minute to be characterized by a steadiness of heart and a stability of mind, to be truly, truly alive. And and one person who really believed that that was true and that was possible in Christ was Irenaeus of Lyon. We talked about Irenaeus a few weeks ago. He's the one who said the glory of God is a human being who is fully alive. In other words, the thing that gives God the greatest delight is to actually see someone who has awakened to this aliveness that the resurrection came to bring. How alive are you? Because the trouble is with you and me is that we know we've been invited to life. We know that the resurrection invites us to live and live fully and abundantly right now and not just right now, but eternally But you and I vacillate between these two extremes, don't we? We vacillate because at times we can look alive and be dead, and at times we can seem dead, but there be something alive within us. And we're constantly moving on this uh, this spectrum of resurrection where we're continually moving toward resurrection more and more every day. And, And this is so important these days because we're in this series called Resurrection. And what I've been trying to tell you, my beloved sisters and brothers, is that resurrection is not simply a one-time event. It's not just a one-time event, but it is an all-the-time invitation to a way of life. A way of life, of waking up in the morning and recognizing, today I will be prone to pathways of death. Today I will be prone to take on the patterns of death to live with an attitude of demise and despair, to behave in a way that leads me down paths of destruction, but to be called out of those entombed attitudes to resurrection is the whole point. We're constantly moving gradually, methodically, uh, perpetually, one day at a time to more and more and more resurrection until we end in eternity, right? And there is no story in Scripture that better describes this kind of progressive, um, consistent, perpetual move from death to life and then 
to more life and to more life than the scripture that we have in front of us today. You heard Annie read it from the cemetery, right? You heard these truths proclaimed from a space of death. You heard words of life. So there are these two sisters, and they love their brother, and their brother is really sick. The brother's name is Lazarus, and so the sisters reach out to Jesus, but he's in another town. And they reach out to Jesus to say, you got to get here quick because he's dying. Jesus doesn't get there quickly. He takes his time. He, he tarries. And he waits so long that Lazarus actually dies. By the time Jesus gets to the town, he, he's approaching the town. And just on the outskirts of the town, Martha, one of the sisters, meets Jesus just on the outside of the city. She says to him, my Lord... If you had been here, he would have been alive. He was living. He got sick. We reached out to you, but you didn't come. If he was here, if you were here, he would still be here with us today. And Jesus looks into her eyes and says, Martha, your, your brother is going to live. Your brother will live again. And, and Martha thinks that he's just talking like a preacher. Martha thinks that he's just theologizing, and she says to him, I know I mean, yes, at the end of the age, when everything's all said and done, he'll rise just like the rest of us. But I mean, he's dead right now. And Jesus said, no, what you don't understand is that I, I, I am the resurrection. See, I, whatever room I am in, there is aliveness available. But Martha couldn't see it. Through the veil of her grief, she couldn't see it. So they go into the city, and Jesus walks into this town, and he what he sees breaks his heart. He looks all around him and there is just death everywhere. I mean, there is one funeral, but death is in the air. It's thick like a, like a cloud that has descended upon the people. There are men who are resigned, sitting on the ground, leaning against trees and fences. There, there are women who are professional mourners who are throwing dirt into the air and, and rubbing uh, ash on their faces and they're grieving and lamenting out loud singing songs of lamentation and then there's Mary the other sister and Jesus sees her and she shuffles her way she's usually full of life she's vibrant she's kind of outgoing she's full of energy but not today she shuffles her way over to Jesus her eyes swollen shut for days on end of crying for the loss of her brother. And Jesus sees all this, right? And he's overwhelmed by what he sees. In fact, the text describes what he sees this way. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. In the King James Version of the Bible, it, the, the words are fewer and more to the point. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And I'm thinking about the, 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 odd, the, the oddity of that moment that Jesus weeps. He is the resurrection he knows that in just a few short moments, Lazarus will be alive. He knows how this whole thing ultimately ends in the end of all time. And he weeps. And some look at it and say, oh, he must have been really close to, to Lazarus. But it's more than that. He's seeing 
in that town. Something that goes on all the time, everywhere, even this very day. He sees on the faces of the people around despair and resignation because it's as if death itself had come dancing into town, pirouetting on top of the hearts and minds of the people, somehow convincing them that death is dominant, that death is ultimate. And he sees the weeping women and the the men who have resigned and, and hears the sounds of death in the air, and he's overcome, and he weeps. He is the resurrection, and he recognizes in that very moment he can't just snap them out of it. He recognizes that for a time, even he who is full of life and offers life is there to minister to them and to us who at times will believe the opposite, that death reigns, and that's enough to bring tears to the eyes of Messiahs. See, Back when we had our blue Christmas service last year, I shared a post that I had seen on social media, and I think it's fitting here about this very story. He cried. He knew Lazarus was dead before he got the news, but still he cried. He knew Lazarus would be alive again in moments, but still he cried. He knew this world is not home. He knew death here is not forever. He knew eternity and the kingdom better than anyone else could, and he wept. Because this world is full of pain and regret and loss and depression and devastation, He wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. And before I say another word about what it means to live and die and truly be alive in Christ, you need to hear this. In these moments when you feel as if the thing has died, whatever it is, the faith has died, the dream has died, the relationship, the marriage has died, whenever you are standing thick in death, And if only for a moment you begin to believe that that is it, that is over, this is as good as it's ever going to get. In that moment, you need to know that Christ weeps for you. Not in anger that you somehow, what, don't have enough faith or somehow you have a weak moment. No, he weeps because he knows the end of your story better than you know the end of your story and he wants you to know it and to live right now in the fullness of the confidence that comes from knowing it so jesus walks through that crowd thick with pain and hurt and anguish and he goes to the tomb. And he commands that the stone be rolled away from the tomb. At this point, Mary, or Martha, the sister, says, Jesus, that's a bad idea. I mean, he's been dead for four days. It's a bad idea. And incidentally, just FYI, I think this is fantastic. There's a local legend in that area that at the time, locals believed that the spirit, when you die, the spirit stays around close by for about three days. Jesus comes on the fourth day. Because Jesus wants all the cosmos to know that if you really want resurrection from me, something first has to be really, really dead. 
So she comes to him and says, Lord, he's been dead for four days. This is how she put it. Lord, already there is a stench. I love that. Because he has been dead for four days. But here's what the King James says about it. Lord, by this time he stinketh. He stinketh. (laughs) And she's saying to him, it's too late because this one is too dead to get up. Do you know what that feels like? For the thing to be too far gone. And maybe for you it was faith for a while. Maybe it was like, you know, I had a faith for a while and then it, it kind of waned and I tried to pump air into it, tried to pump life into it, but I tried to go to church, I tried to make the thing happen, but I had too many wounds. Too many people told me things that were unnecessary that turned me off and so it kind of died. And now, even though now, I mean, I've got kids, I'm going to bring kids to church because they need a chance, but I'm just kind of going through the motions, you know? I'm just going through the motions. I listen to the music. It's good music. There's talented folks at JCBC. I listen to the sermons. Sometimes he says some things interesting. But for me, really, that faith, that part of me has been dead for a long time. In fact, it's been so dead and in a tomb for so long that it stinketh. Or it's a relationship because I know the thing was said and the wound was inflicted because of something that was said or done or maybe because of something that wasn't said or wasn't done and nobody reconciled. And it's just out there still in the universe and it's been so long since we've even addressed it that we, we all just kind of put it in our tombs and because it's been in the tomb for so long, the hope of that thing reviving is dead and it actually just it, it stinketh. Or maybe the thing that you've put in your tomb long ago was this idea that maybe early on you dreamed of being somewhere where you are not right now. And where you are right now is so very different than where you thought you would be and what you thought you would do and who you thought you would be. And there was a day long ago when you used to daydream. Do you remember that? You used to look out windows and daydream about a moment, a thing, a season that would come and it never came. And the more seasons that came and went without this dream coming, the more you realize this thing really is dying. It's sick. It's sick unto death. It's going to be sick until it dies. And then it died. And maybe for you the thing that has died is your imagination. To be able to imagine the possibility of a life that is different than the one you're living right now. But it's been buried for so long, you're like, that stinks. The vision of that life or that purpose or that calling, it stinks now. It stinketh, Lord. The trouble is Jesus has, has never been offended by things in us that stink. Jesus is always drawn to the stinky parts of our hidden lives. So he goes over to the tomb where typically we would not go. We don't like to go to the places that stink. We don't like to drag it up. We don't like to talk about it. We don't even want to think about it anymore. But Jesus always goes to the place where we are not willing to go. He has friends who are not the kind of friends we would have. He hangs out with sinners and prostitutes and crooks, and and he has no problem whatsoever with going to the places and to the people we would have a problem with. But what I'm trying to say to you today, my sisters and my brothers, is that even that part of you that you don't want to visit, Jesus is not afraid 
to go to the place in you that stinks. Yeah. So he stands there at the tomb. And the tomb now is open. And with his voice, he, he cries out with a strong voice, Lazarus, come out. I never can think of that verse without thinking about my grandmother. Uh, for some reason, when I was a kid, I mean, really small, I remember my grandmother talking about this story for some reason. I don't know why. It's not like we went to church. It's not like we, but we were talking about Lazarus one day. I don't know. And she said, do you know why Jesus had to use the name Lazarus when he said, come out? Do you know why he had to call him by name? I said, no. She said, because if he, with his voice, had just said, come out, then all the graves in the neighborhood would have opened up and the dead would have walked. See, I think that's fascinating. But he calls into this specific grave and says, you, Lazarus, come out. And I love what Marianne Williamson says about it. This is what she says. Look, resurrection, I love this, is where God says, get out of that tomb. You don't belong there. That's not you. Stop identifying with those dead bones. Stop identifying with the deadness in you. That's not the real you. Is that not beautiful? Stop identifying with the deadness in you because the reality is you and I can be so fixated upon the deadness in us that we can't even hear the voice of the word that has become flesh, speaking words of life, come out. We can't hear it because we're fixated upon the deadness that is in us. Jesus wants to stand in the presence of whatever it is that has died in your life and wants to call you out of death and into life. But here's the rub. You can't resurrect yourself. You can't. I mean, you might be listening to my words and you might be thinking, you know, that's actually compelling. Yeah, maybe I should give it another try. I want to I be alive, so I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I got this. Yeah, let's give it another go. <laughs> Good luck. Because that's not how resurrection works. Do you, even, do, do you know that, that even Jesus... When he is raised from the dead, the whole of the New Testament, when describing the resurrection of Jesus, says that he was raised, that the Father raised him up. Jesus didn't even raise himself up from the grave. And if Christ can't raise himself up, but has to be raised up by the Father, who are you and I to think that we can raise ourselves up out of the deadness that is in here? But what we can do is tune our ears to the voice who says, I want you alive. Come out. See? Yeah. So Lazarus heard the voice and Lazarus came out. This is what the text says. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This may be the most fascinating part of this whole story for me. 
Not the moment when he revives or he resurrects Lazarus from death to life, but maybe it's this part of the story. It's provocative because the reality is he's alive and there he is shuffling his way from the grave to the outside of the grave, but he's bound in his grave clothes. He's bound head to foot in, in, the, in the cloths of death, the bands of destruction, the clothes that are meant for someone who is dead. And, and he's so bound that he cannot move. So at his feet, his feet are bound and he cannot run to tell the good news. His knees are bound with the clothing of death so he can't bend in humility. His waist is bound with his death clothes so he can't bow in reverence before his Lord. His arms are bound in the bands of grave clothes so he can't embrace his sisters or use his hands to to do good works. His head is bound so he cannot think like a person who is actually alive because all he knows is what he sees. Behind his eyes, they are bound and he can't see his new life, nor can he speak because his mouth is covered by bands of death. And I am just aware that there are moments in our lives when you and I, even if we confess that we are alive, even if you know you've been raised by Christ, We can at times wear the old grave clothes that actually keep us from living alive. So we bind our feet, our arms, our head, our mouth, our head. We we bind ourselves in such a way that all we can think about is the old wound and the, the argument that never got resolved, the sin that caused the brokenness that resulted in the split, the problems that caused our death we still wear the clothing of those things, and because we are bound by them, we can't fully live. And I wonder, what is it in your life right now that you're wearing? What kind of grave clothes, what kind of bands of shrouds of death are you carrying from the life that you used to live? Because Christ, when he raises you from the dead does not raise you in order to stand there like a mummy and not be and live and go and do and love and and be alive. He wants to loose you in every conceivable way. So he stands there seeing Lazarus kind of struggle, shuffling along. Yeah, he's got a pulse. Yeah, he exists, but that's not resurrection. So Jesus calls out and says to them, unbind him and let him go. Somebody who's listening to me today needs to understand the voice of the word of life is this. He wants you to be unbound so that you can live fully in resurrection. Because when we come to Christ and he raises us from our old life and death and decay and destruction and despair and depression, when he brings us up out of that old life, He wants to give us new clothes to wear. He wants to take away the grave clothes so that we may be clothed with him. This is how Galatians puts it. We hear every one of you that has been baptized has been clothed in Christ. But if you are clothed in Christ, it's not like he comes and gives you like a a new clothing to simply cover up the old wounds. It's not that Jesus wants to swap out your grave clothes and the patterns of death, the memories of death, the memories of your own problems. He doesn't want to just cover them up with like a shinier 
cloth and they still remain. But these clothes that he gives you are meant to actually, truly, literally transform you and bring healing to those wounds and bring wholeness to those places of brokenness that those old grave clothes remind you of every day. It reminds me of a phenomenal story told by Walter Wangren. The story is called The Ragman. Listen to these words, and I ask you to see if you can hear yourself in this story. He says, I, I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story, most strange, nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child. Hush now, and I will, I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling out in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now, this was a wonder. I, I thought to myself, for this man stood six foot four. His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed with intelligence. Couldn't he find any better job in the city than this to be a ragman in the city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon, the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook and her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans and dead toys and pampers. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you mine. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes and she looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and so new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as, as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face and he began to weep, to sob, to grieve so grievously as she had done. His shoulders were shaking and yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder I breathed to myself. I followed the sobbing ragman like a, like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. And he sang, Rags, 
rags, do rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops, I, and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage, and a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow hat from his cart. Give me your rag, my child, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage around her and removed it to tie it upon his own head. The yellow hat now sat gently on her head. And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran darker and more substantial, a blood that was his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky and now my eyes, and the ragman seemed to more and more be in a hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man leaning against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you, do you have a, a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat and cuffed, stuffed into his pocket. He had no arm. So... The ragman said, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman. And I trembled at what I saw for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And when the other put it on, he had two good arms thick as tree limbs. But the ragman only had one. Go to work. He said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wheezing, and sick. He took the blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman. Though he was weeping uncontrollably, bleeding freely from the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling from drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick, yet he went with terrible speed, like, like a spider's legs. He, he went running through alleys of the city this mile and then the next until he came to the city limits. And then he rushed beyond the city. I wept to see the change in this man, and I hurt to see his sorrow. 
And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. This little old ragman came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And then when I wanted to help him in what way I could, in what he was doing, I stayed back, hiding. He climbed a hill and with tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket. He died. Oh, how I cried. To witness that death. I, I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who had no hope because I had come to love the rag man. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man. And I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. And I don't know how it happened, but I slept through that Friday and all of Saturday and it's night time too. But then, on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face. And I blinked and I looked and I saw the last and the first wonder of it all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides all of this, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age, and all of the rags that he had gathered shined with cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, trembling for all that I had seen, and I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all of my rags. I shed all of my clothes right there in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning and longing in my voice, dress me. And he dressed me. My Lord, did he dress me. He put on new rags on me, and I, and I am a wonder now because of him, the ragman. The rag man, the Christ. My sisters and brothers, what I'm trying to tell you today as we talk about death and life and that place where we find ourselves in between is that it's not enough to simply exist. It's not enough to simply have a pulse. Christ did not die upon that hill among the trash heap so that you can simply stay bound in all the memories of your death and all of the vestiges and clothing of your former life. He came to strip away all the pain, but here's the best news of all. With the, the, the bands of cloth that he takes, with the rags he takes from you, so goes the wound. He wants to remove all of the, the rags that keep you from actually, truly, literally experiencing the aliveness of resurrection. Will you let him? You might be 
there today and you're hearing this and you're, you're like, that sounds really good, but I don't know where to start. Where you start is where you are. Christ meets you where you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. It starts with a prayer. And maybe somebody listening to my voice today needs to say it simply this way. God, I recognize that I put something away in a tomb a long time ago. I put my faith in you in a tomb. I put maybe my hope in you in a tomb. And, and I need you to stand outside of my grave and call me by name to come out and live. And somebody here needs to pray it that way. God, I am dead. I've got nothing. And I need you to call me out of death and into life. And some of Somebody who's listening, somebody listening today may be aware that you've been raised up to new life, but you're bound by these, these rags that remind you of your old life, and you can't seem to get past these patterns of death. And they wreck all your relationships. They ruin all of your plans and dreams. And still, at the end of the day, you feel as distant from God as you were in the very beginning, and you you need to maybe pray these words, God, I recognize that you have set me free in order to be free, but I continue every day to dress with my grave clothes. Every day I consciously put on, maybe it's subconsciously, I don't know if I'm doing it or not, Lord, I don't know, but what I do know is I am constantly wearing memories of my former life and my sin and my struggle, and I need you to take these cloths off of me to unbind me and, and I admit to you that I can't do it myself. My hands are tied and I cannot move. So I yield to you. I confess to you that you are able to do with me what I cannot do on my own. I submit my life before you and I trust in the power of your love as cosmically demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection to new life. I claim that. I claim it as my own. And I want to be yours. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, friend, if you prayed that prayer, you need to tell somebody. Maybe you prayed it right there where you are watching your screen, your TV, your device. But if you prayed that prayer and meant it in your heart, then today is the very first day of your new life in Christ. And I, I want you to tell me about it. I want you to email me and let me know if you prayed something like that prayer. And if you want to talk further, have a conversation about where you are in the journey so that you can continue to move from death to more and more and more life and I'm ready to talk to you. But wherever it is that you go from this conversation, this, this study, this worship moment, wherever you go from where you're sitting right now, may Christ, the rag man, go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on days when the dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. 
that Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. Mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his.